Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. So three days, three nights in the belly of the fish. Jesus draws comparison in Matthew. He says he's just like Jonah, but greater. This imagery of three days and three nights, this prayer from deep in the belly of the fish. I love this quote. It's from James Ackerman from his book, Satire and Symbolism in the Song of Jonah. He writes this, super interesting this week. He says, the male fish, dog, is the Hebrew word that devoured Jonah in chapter 2, verse 1, becomes a female, daga, the Hebrew word there, for Jonah once he enters her entrails. The point is forced upon us further as we hear Jonah from the belly of a female fish sing a misguided song from the womb of Sheol. Sheol, the Hebrew word for grave or tucked away, the bottom of everything, um, hell, it's sometimes referred to. In Jonah's case, the belly of a fish or the roots of the mountain, he says in his prayer. But this, this journey that Jonah is going through is common to our experience as well. Some might call it the dark night of the soul. When we're going through Sheol, we find that God is there in the middle of it with us. Jonah's going through some sort of passage, some sort of journey that's not uncommon to the pages of Scripture. The journey of the Israelites from Egypt through the waters to Mount Sinai is to take three days. The first three-day journey ever recorded in the Bible is when Abraham heads to Jerusalem to sacrifice his only son Isaac is to take three days. It's this network of three days passages in the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus draws upon when he uses the phrase three days or on the third day to describe his liberation from death into resurrection life. There's this journey that Jonah is going through. And we find here in the passage when Jonah gets back to the loving kindness of God, the grace of God, It's only then that he's released into the land of the living. The word that Jonah uses in verse 9 is similar to chesed. You got to kind of get the throat behind it there. The Hebrew word is chesed. The loving kindness, the great compassion of God, the love of God would be, um, would be, would fall short of how Jonah is describing how God feels, how God is towards him. The great compassion of God, the covenant, the commitment of love and kindness and mercy and grace God has towards you and towards me. Jonah's describing from the belly of the fish, the chesed of God, the steadfast love. And it's only when Jonah cries out who God really is that he's released from the fish. Let's read it. Chapter two, we're going to go one through 10. If you have a Bible and you want to read along with me or swipe there with me on your phone, we read this from deep inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, or Sheol, I called for help. You listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, 
into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished or barred from your sight. Bruno Mars, locked out of heaven. How many? I've been locked out of heaven. Jonah's just, Bruno Mars just singing Jonah's song. I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed has wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain, I sink down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Further instance there in verse 10 where all the characters are upside down. Jonah is disobedient. The great fish is way obedient. The great fish shows up exactly when God wants it to. And the great fish vomits Jonah out as God commands it to do so. That's the whole irony of the thing is that the fish obeys God and Jonah doesn't. So, okay, from the belly of the fish, three days, three nights, and stinky stomach fish acid, just grossness, Jonah prays this prayer. And there's a flow chart. You guys thought you were out of work. There's a flow chart that I'd like to show you that's provided by um, a friend of the vineyard, Tim Mackey. He runs this thing called The Bible Project, and we watched his video at the onset of the series, and this sort of lays out the literary design and the flow of thought here for the prayer. And I'd like us to see how there's, um, draw, there's uh, he's, Jonah is engaging with the Psalms here from the belly of the fish, and he's actually drawing on rich literary content in the Psalms and employing it in his prayer in the belly of the fish. And you see how A matches up with A there at the bottom, and the Bs match up, and the Cs match up. There's commonality. There's a a script, so to speak, of which Jonah is working through. And that's important to see Jonah's thought in what he is praying. You know, in verses four and verses seven, tuck these away, that phrase, to your holy temple, really important. We'll get to that later. Jonah says it twice, and he's bookending this thought in the, in the second B there, but you raise my life up from the pit, Yahweh my God. Which is funny because in the first B, he just says, you cast me to the deep, to the heart of the seas. And they counteract one another there. So there's a literary design and there's a flow of thought. Jonah's not just praying anything. He's praying something that means something to us today here in Cleveland, Ohio. And we're going to uncover some of that as we move through it. And what Jonah is discovering is that there are three crucial truths about grace that he's getting at through the passage that he's making through what turns out to be not his death or destruction, but the vehicle of God's mercy. The fish is actually acting as a vehicle to get Jonah to where he needs to be, to become who he's meant to be. 
And so the first crucial truth about grace that Jonah is slightly picking up on, and we'll talk about partial grace here in a minute, but the first one that he's picking up on is that the human heart is a moral ill desert. What do I mean by that? I mean that we are guilty. Jonah knows. Y'all, Jonah knows that it's his sin that's landed him in the belly of the fish. He's not covering that up. He's not being, uh, he's, there's no pretense to it. Jonah understands he's willfully walking away from the presence of God. He's willfully uh, discarding the call of God on his life. And he knows because of that, it's landed him in the belly of the fish. David says in Psalm uh, 51 that that it's his sin before you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. David knows it. David knows that he's blew it. Gosh, wouldn't that be wonderful if we had a a few politicians today who would act more like that? I blew it. It's all my fault. I take responsibility. Sadly, we don't live in that sort of place, do we? Think about it. David's a king, and he's going before all of the people, and he's saying, listen, I blew it. I messed up. How refreshing would that be? My goodness, that'd be amazing. Morally ill desert. We are guilty. Jonah knows that he deserved divine justice. The Puritans used to define sin as life bent in on itself. Life bent in on itself. Jonah knows he's blown it. And he's where he is because he chose to do what he did. And that's the first truth about grace that we need to grasp as followers of Jesus, as people living in a broken world. That we are broken. That we have done things that have caused consequences in our lives, that have rubbed against the grain of God's order for things. That we've offended God's heart. This isn't a popular message in the church or in the world today. But it's a hopeful message. It's the first, it's, it's the first truth about grace that we need to grasp if we're to follow Jesus. That we've blown it. That we've messed up. That we've lived life bent in on ourselves. And it goes hand in hand with the second uh, crucial truth about grace, which is that we are spiritually impotent. We cannot cleanse ourselves. And Jonah realizes this in verse 3 when he says, It was you who hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me. You know, the great lie of our society is that we can fix ourselves. That we can just get it together to a certain point to where we feel that God owes us now that we've cleaned up. And that is so not the gospel of Jesus. God does not owe you or me anything. And even the cleanest person here this morning is still carrying dirty rags before the throne of Almighty God. 
You could do your very best through the, the, the very length of your life to clean up and to, to get proper before God. But the scriptures, my friend, are clear that all have fallen short of the glory of God. From the moment we come out crying, helpless, we're flawed. We're clueless. And so Jonah's recognizing here this lie in our culture that we can fix ourselves, that we can repair something of our heart. How many of you have tried to fix themselves? Anybody out there? A few. <laughs> How's that going for you? <laughs> it doesn't work. Amen. That'll preach. It don't work. It just don't work. We cannot repair ourselves. And Jonah in verse 6 begins a little bit to reject this lie, to reject this idea. When he says, To the roots of the mountain I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. So he's starting to turn a little bit. He's starting to see that it's God's power that raises him up from the pit. It's not his own power that raises him up and puts his feet on solid ground, on dry land. It's God's power that raises us up. We need God's power, the, the same power as Dave led us in communion this morning and expressed so beautifully that it's the same power that raised Christ from the grave that raises us from the dead as well. And as we sang this morning that he's still rolling stones away. It's what he does best when sinners come to him acknowledging that they are powerless against the waves of sin washing over us and that we are morally uh, in a morally ill desert, it's there that God does his best work, his finest work, taking helpless sinners and transforming them into tokens of his grace. And so Jonah's starting to get it. I don't know if I could say he's starting to get it. He's starting to turn a little bit. Romans 5, 6, um, Paul writes this idea, and he says, we're, when we were unable to help ourselves at the moment of our need, Christ died for us, although we were living against God. And again, in Ephesians, Paul writes, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God in Christ Jesus. You know, so he's starting to turn. He's saying, you, O oh Lord, lift me up from the pit. But he's still not all the way there. Not even close. We'll find. Not even close. But if you and I grasp what Jonah didn't on this side of the cross, it truly is amazing grace. If we acknowledge that we're morally bankrupt that we're spiritually um, powerless. God has you and I right where he wants us. Then God's grace becomes amazing. Then God's grace becomes the most wonderful thing that we could ever seek or lay hold of on planet earth. 
Which brings us to the third crucial truth about grace, which is that salvation is costly. Salvation is costly. Remember I told you to tuck away verses four and seven? Here's where we're going to dig into it. And my heart just blew up this week as I dug deeper into the scripture in preparation. In verse four, Jonah prays, I've been banished from your sight or from heaven, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. What's going on there? Verse seven, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. So twice he's mentioning the temple in Jerusalem. And what uh, I believe is going on here is though Jonah mentions heaven, he's mentioning the holy temple um, generally, Jerusalem generally, but more specifically he's pointing inside to the holy of holies, to the ark of the covenant where the mercy seat rests. He's talking about the mercy seat of God, which was like a gold slab that was placed over the Ark of the Covenant. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the priest, the Jewish priest, was to, the, the high priest was told to sprinkle blood. Let's read it. It's first mentioned in Exodus and in Leviticus. We're given a description of what the priest was to do for the forgiveness of the sins of all the Jewish people. In Leviticus 16, 14, and 15, we read that the priest is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain And do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. The mercy seat of which Jonah is pointing to, we know on this side of the cross, finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Jonah's starting to Again, I hesitate to say it, but starting to wrap his heart and his head around this idea that God and his glorious mercy is his only hope. And where do we find hope? If you are a Jew, you find hope at the mercy seat on the day of atonement through the giving of blood, the the sacrificial system of slaughtering animals and receiving forgiveness, not just for you, but for your whole entire family. That year and the year following and the year following, think about how many sacrifices were being turned over in the city of Jerusalem and how many times priests would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and watching that blood flow down and Israeli families feeling cleansed for their sin, but only for a year and then do it again the next year. And what it ultimately points forward to is the blood of Jesus at the mercy seat. He's called the, he's called the mercy seat. His death at the cross acted as the mercy seat. In Hebrews 9, 11 through 15, oh my gosh, I love it. I love it. We read this, 9, 11 through 15. When Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. 
He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then? I was going to do a preacher gimmick and say, somebody say, how much more then? But let's just let that sit. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousnesses from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Ah, I want to go on. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness Christ Christ the Lord is Lord in fact because he went to the cross and shed his blood for you and for me Jonah's beginning to understand that is the it's only by the death of another which secures forgiveness for him. He's only beginning now to understand that we're sinners. All of us, unable to save ourselves and able to be saved only through extreme and costly measures. And we read in Hebrews that Jesus paid that cost that he was offered up. He wasn't a victim. He gave his life willingly to buy back people, to redeem people into relationship with him and into the kingdom. And this is why I believe Jesus draws our attention to Jonah in the book of Matthew. He says he's like Jonah, but he's greater. Jonah was beginning to understand that God wanted his heart. And it's at this point in the message, which we've been saying every week, that it's not really about the fish. One, two, three. It's not really about the fish. Good. 
It's not about the fish. God wants Jonah's heart. It's not, this is really hard to say, and I know that because I'm in it with you guys, but it's not really about the circumstance that we're in. Yeah, it's not about the fish. It's not really about the fish. Jesus says he's the mercy seat. And when people, you, myself, anyone with a heartbeat, awaken to the reality that their lives are beyond their own power to save, Christ is there to receive us. And his, his blood spilling down the mercy seat to wash away our sins and the sins of the whole world. And that's good news for us. Well, Jonah ends his prayer with a shout of grace and the process of grace. In verse six, dang it, I moved my bookmark. Now I'm lost. Is it, oh, there we go. In verse six, thanks, Christine. Everybody give it up for Christine. Doing a great job. Doing a great job. In verse 6, Jonah says, But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. And in verse 9, he says, With shouts of grateful praise, salvation comes, dot, 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 at the end. Salvation comes only, we should add only there, only from the Lord. He says he's been shut out of heaven, and yet God lifts him up. Do you see what's going on here? Jonah is lost, but God saves. The idea that God brings down and lifts up is all over Scripture. In 1 Samuel, we read that he brings down to the grave, yet he raises up. Jonah worships, and here's the key, Jonah worships before he's released from the fish. Love it. Jonah worships on the altar of his pain. He worships before he's released from the fish. He has no promise of getting out alive. In fact, he later says, God, I wish you would just kill me already. He's done. He's out. There's no promise. There's no false hope given to him that he would make it out of the belly of the fish alive. And he chooses to worship in the belly, in this womb that's been created for him. And that, friends, is the real deliverance. Never again on this side of heaven, the other side of heaven when there's no more tears and no more suffering and no more pain, you will not have the opportunity to worship God from a place of pain. 
This is a unique time, an age of grace, where we get to discover this crucial, this key part, this facet of God's character, which is so near to him that he's kind endlessly, that his mercy endures forever. And we only experience that from a place of pain. There's no other way. I wish that there was. But never again where you and I have the opportunity to worship God from a place of pain and suffering. And that encourages me to lift my worship to God. You think we'll reminisce about those days when we're all in glory? Remember when we used to worship you, Jesus, from a place of pain and you were so faithful to us then. And now no more tears, no more suffering, no more hurt. Won't that be a good one? That'll be glorious. That'll be glorious because we only have this moment to worship God from a place of pain. So Jonah's prayer ends with a shout in verse nine. He says, salvation comes from you alone. So now I can say, I think with some authenticity that he's starting He's starting to get it. He's starting to turn, although the jury's still out. He says, salvation comes from you alone, Lord. So he's beginning to understand that God saves us. And that's the gospel, that God saves us. Salvation comes only from the Lord. There's no other way. Jesus says he is the way. We don't save ourselves. Jesus saves. And yet, this is a process. For the better majority of people living on planet Earth, this is a process. There are some where it's all there in one instant. But for the greater majority of us, this is a, it's more like a sunrise. It's more like day breaking. It's, it's gradual. Salvation is a process. Transformation is a process. Salvation comes through the death of Jesus on the cross, but we are in process. We're being sanctified. We're being cleansed. We don't cleanse ourselves. We're being cleansed. And this is a process. It's a journey that will take your whole life. Buckle up. And I love that about who God is. And here's why I love it. In verse 8, Jonah says that idolatry blocks people from receiving God's grace. Jonah says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace of God, which could be theirs. And that verse speaks volumes to each one of us in the room this morning. Idolatry blocks people from receiving God's grace. So the question is, what's Jonah's idol? What is it? Because it's certainly not a golden calf, you know, that the Hebrews constructed when they got impatient from hearing from Moses or hearing from God on the mountain. So they constructed a God and worshiped this golden calf. It's not that. What is it? Could it be a vision of the good life that doesn't include God's authority? Jonah's learning to see that God's authority and how his mercy plays into it, but he hasn't fully grasped it yet. Do you feel the tension in this? 
Let me dial it down a little bit more. He, there's tension here because he's saying those, those, those people <laughs> who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace of God, which could be theirs. And yet he's being delivered still from the belly of the fish. So despite his breakthrough, he's still being brought to a place of God's calling into more of who he's being shaped and transformed to be. That is great news. That's great news because Jonah is flawed. Can we all agree that Jonah is flawed? He's clueless. Jonah is clueless. Can we all agree that you and I are flawed and you and I are clueless about the grace of God and how deep the grace of God and how wide the mercy of God is for you and for me. And yet, though we don't get it, we don't understand, we are clueless. We don't understand why bad things happen to us. We don't understand why we continue in habits of sin. We don't understand why these people are fighting. We don't understand why our spouse is the way that they are. We don't understand the problems at the workplace. We don't understand human greed. We don't understand the, the, why the world is what it is. We're clueless, we're flawed, and yet the grace of God covers it all while we're still in process of figuring it out, which we never will, yet God gives us his grace in vast abundance, shows us a key component to who God is, that he's willing to say, though you're flawed and though you're clueless, I still, yet still will deliver you out of the belly of the fish. That's the gospel, that we're all in process. That God releases Jonah, though his repentance is partial. I mean, we're not told in the narrative that Jonah's pouring, you know, he's in the belly of the fish, however tight that is, and, and that he's like pouring ashes over his head and, and ripping his clothes as, as kings did to, to, to repent, to turn back to God as a sign. He's not doing that. He's still, he's still like the Ninevites don't deserve it. And I'm, I'll go because after all, I'm in the belly of a fish. He's still not there yet. But God commands the fish, and the fish vomits him onto dry land. Process, 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 process. It's wonderful news. It's the good news. It's the gospel. That though he's clueless and flawed, he's still delivered. Though he doesn't have it all figured out, and he never will, God is still with him. And God carries him. It's amazing. And it's never really over, is it? There's always room for us to grow. There's always room for us to come into a new season of understanding and of living out the precious grace of Jesus. And he's so faithful, isn't he? 
Isn't Jesus so faithful to carry it, to provide great fish in our lives? Isn't he wonderful? Yeah. Totally. On a side note, that's how you can tell if, if a disciple has been in Jesus' presence. That's, how you, that's the mark. When they're beginning to pray prayers of gratitude for being in a belly of a fish, you know that person has gotten around Jesus. It's not a, mechanis- it's not a mechanistic type of thinking. It's, I'm going through this because there's something I need to learn about the character of God and the grace that he's shed on my life. That I know that this is for my good. That he knows my good better than I know my good what's good for me. He knows best. God knows best. 